0: Uh, let's do this. We're in 2 Samuel 12. 12. Um, We are making our way through the Samuels, and we're doing this series called Prophets and Kings. And the idea of this is we want to find Jesus, as he said, in the scriptures. Jesus said, when you read the scriptures in them, you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. We want to read now whether whatever book it is, whatever book it is, how does this speak of or reflect the gospel of Jesus? How do we see Jesus in this? And we've been specifically now looking at the life of David. So we went through 1 Samuel. We saw Saul being the king. It end, his life ended in tragedy. He dies. 2 Samuel begins with David being the anointed king. David is now king. And it's different because all the tribes are unified under him. David's first order of business is bring back the Ark of the Covenant. Then he wants to build God a house, and God's like, no, I'm going to build you a house. Then David's like, I just want to bless people. I want to bless God. I want to bless people. Remember the story of Mephibosheth in chapter 9. David just pours out blessing on that guy, Mephib. Love that guy. He blesses him. And then we saw last week, and this is really what David's known for. There's two names. You hear David and Goliath. We saw this last week. You You think of David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba. And it goes down as one of the most infamous stories, I think, in the Old Testament, And the reason why I think this is so important for us to study is, when you look at the life of David, as we've been saying the last couple of weeks, but still want to repeat it, when you look at the life of David, David at his best is a wonderful picture and reflection of Jesus. There's so many times where you go, I get it. David would one day speak of the son of David. Like, we know Jesus took on that title, the son of David. Because David at his best was a beautiful picture of Jesus. But David at his worst reveals a desperate need for Jesus. And here in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, now we're hitting 12, we're seeing David just just fail epically. We saw what happened last week. We looked at chapter 11. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He calls her to himself. He sleeps with her. He calls her husband from battle. Hey, how's it going? He won't go back home. He won't sleep with his wife. So David's like, we gotta find out what to do. He sends Uriah into battle, pulls the troops back, essentially kills Uriah. And that's where the chapter ends. If you're with us last week, We looked at the idea of where sin takes you, where sin takes you. Today, I want to look at just where repentance takes you, where repentance takes you. The chapter ends with, and this displeased the Lord, or really what it says is, this was very evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's how chapter 11 ends. Chapter 12 begins by God sending David a prophet to call him out on his sin. So if you're just kind of following the flow of the story we looked at last week, we all have the capacity to sin. We looked at how we, we all can try to cover our sin. and today we're going to see the idea of uh, calling out sin and confessing sin and even the consequences of sin. So we're just going to kind of walk through this. Here's what we're going to do. Because it's a longer story, I just want to read it all at once. So we're going to read Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 through 25. I know you can do it. Again, we're going to do a long read right now. All right, so here we go. Just second Samuel chapter 12 verse 1. Remember, it ends, the thing that David did had displeased the Lord, chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, David, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many, had had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he bought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I'll raise up evil against you out of your own house And I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this before all Israel, before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you've utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went to the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he had asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then the servants said to him, what is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when, he, when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and a For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went to her and lay with her. And she bore a son and called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name, Solomon's name, Jedidiah. Because of the Lord. Jedediah means the Lord has loved greatly. Um, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we just want to thank you. Um, there is nothing like you. There is no one like you. God, nothing will satisfy the, the, the deep longings of our heart like you. And God, we want to thank you for how you speak to us. We want to thank you for what David's life speaks of that, God, you're open and honest with his success and with his failures, that you're not shy away from addressing sin. God, that you also press in and show this redemptive love to David and to us. And um, Lord, I ask, God, that I know this, this story brings up many questions. This story maybe brings up a lot of pain in different ways. And Jesus, I ask that you just bring clarity, that you bring hope, that you bring peace, that, Jesus, we would see you in this story that God, we would see you in this story, and that you would just accomplish your work and your will in us, and that we'd be like you, Jesus. In your wonderful name, amen. You know, having a house now with a six-month-old and three-year-old and seven-year-old, it's just non-stop chaos, as you can imagine, Uh, especially with a three-year-old and seven-year-old. This is just that age where they love to just cause chaos and fight with each other and blame each other, and you really don't know what's going on and what's the true story sometimes. And this is just, I mean, listen, I, I, being a parent, you you know sin is inherent within children. Like, you know it. If someone's like, no, we're born good, have a child, we're not born good. We are born wicked sinners. And we are at that stage, of just watching them, and it's so funny, you know, we you see it so early on. No one had to teach them this. If they mess up or they do something they, they know they shouldn't do, they're the first to lie and, and try to cover it up as fast, even if we watch them do it. I'm sure you've all seen videos of like parents kind of posting their kids lying to them. Like, I, we just had that this week. My daughter's like covered in Sharpie all over. And like, I don't know what she's doing. She's like a weird mustache, just covered in Sharpie. And she knows she's not allowed to touch the Sharpie, right? Like, did you touch the Sharpie? No. Like, I just see her face. Like, oh, you didn't. Mm-mm. Like, oh, you little liar. It's crazy. It's crazy. This cute little blonde, precious girl. I'm like, oh, I love her so much. But she's like, looks me in the eyes. I did not touch the Sharpie. I'm like, oh. like you can lie to your dad that easy. It's so scary. So scary. And there's just story after story like that where you'll see them. I saw them hit each other. Did you hit your sister? No. I'm like, I watched you do. You, you, you know you could have just said, yes, I did. And I would have been so much nicer. But like, No. It's crazy how they immediately know that they need to like when they mess up. I need to cover this up. I need to I need to hide this. That's obviously the story of David, in many ways. He he blows it epically, and he's like, I would rather kill this guy than have a bad reputation. I would rather end your life than people know about my sin. I mean, again, we talked about last week how sin starts small and just can grow very quickly. But I also want to see that David did do something right. When confronted with sin, he immediately repents. But there's so much more to this story. And so I want to kind of break it down and look at this because I think there's so much here we can take away, especially today. There's so much here we can walk away with. So three points today um, that are simple and it's in our text, and it really is clear as day to me. We see first and foremost calling out sin. Then we see confessing your sin. And then we see consequences of sin. I mean, this is the flow of the story, and I think we can learn a lot. Uh, David's first met with someone calling out his sin. He will thankfully not continue to hide it, but he, he will confess it. And then there's still consequences despite forgiveness. So I want to look at kind of that. So number one is this, calling out sin. Let's look at chapter 12, verse 1 again. It says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Let's stop there. All right. Um, I love how the chapter ends and begins. This is fascinating to me. It says, and the thing that David did displeased the Lord. Look up up, uh, 1127, the one verse before. What he did displeased the Lord. And know what God does? He sends a friend. This could have been one of those things where God sends war. God sends judgment. God sends some, some harmful thing. What I love is that God sends a friend. I don't want to move over this. Like, to me, this is grace. What he did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then it says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. How beautiful is that? That God's like, I'm going to send you someone to speak out, to call you out, to speak into you. We need, obviously, Nathan's. We need people who love us enough to say the hard thing. I want to look at this more in just a second, but I just think this is very profound. I love what Matthew Henry says about this verse. He says, One would think it should have followed that the Lord sent enemies to invade him, terrors to take hold on, and the messengers of death to arrest him. But no, he sent a prophet to him. This is the heart of God. Not to condemn, but to convert. To say, I want to bring you to a place of repentance. And he sends Nathan to David. I love what Galatians 6.1 says. It says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But he also talks about, but you know, taking, taking deep look into yourself before you do that. He's saying you who are spiritual, if you see someone who's in sin, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. I believe this is what Nathan's doing. I believe he's restoring him in a spirit of gentleness. And I want to look at his, how he does this in a second. But again, we need Nathans. We really do. And we need Nathans who do it well. And we need to do it gently and lovingly. We live in a weird, bizarre time where friends don't confront, but friends only affirm. We're told that, like, if you're my friend, you would just basically affirm me. That is just not true. Can I tell you, we have this weird ethic today. The ethic is, like, the supreme ethic of our day, or for the last couple decades, the supreme ethic of our day has been tolerance. When I want to suggest a better ethic, it's called Love. And I think love is a better ethic than tolerance. Because if I love you, I can't tolerate disastrous behaviors in your life. If I love you, I'm going to say the hard thing. If I love you, I'm going to do the hard thing. Even if it makes you be upset, I'm going to do it because I I so care. I cannot tolerate this. This This is Nathan. I can't tolerate this in your life, man. I could overlook this. I'm not. You're the king. You're untouchable in many ways. But I love you too much. I have to say the hard thing. And no one, maybe some people take joy in being the, the Nathans, and that's maybe, like, a little sketchy. Like, hey, don't, you know, some people, like, some people, like, take real big joy and just call people sin. But we see this idea of him doing it in the spirit of gentleness. And it starts off with, like, this, this metaphor in the story. And you, I'm sure you've heard this story in some ways, but it's just, it's brilliant, right? He's like, David, i got to tell you, and think about this. As the king still on the throne, your job is to also be the judge. Like, you're everything. It's, it's kind of crazy. All the power kind of lies at your feet. You're like, you're the judge, jury, executioner. You're, you're all of that. And he's like, hey, Nathan goes, I got to tell you about something. There is this really poor guy who has this baby, cute lamb. I mean, it sits at his table. Like it's part of his family. It eats his own food. Then there's this wealthy guy who has just limited amount of of just of cattle. And when a person comes, a stranger comes in that culture, yes, you got to show hospitality. You got to, you got to kill the lamb. You got to feed them. You got to take care of them. And when the stranger came, instead of accessing his own wealth, it's like, let me take this guy's little lamb. And you can just feel like it. David's like, this is not Okay. Like, this is wrong. Let's do something about this. And you just see him immediately say, this man shall die, and he needs to repay fourfold. Now, a couple of things. That is true. If you stole cattle in that, actually, that's an Old Testament law, you would repay someone fourfold. If someone did that, this, you took, someone took from you or you took from someone else, and they find out, hey, you have to repay fourfold. That's actually part of the law, fourfold. So four lambs now for that one. But nowhere in the law, nowhere in the Old Testament is if you steal a lamb or sheep or goat, you die. That's just David adding to the law. That's, that's what we do. We, we love to add to the law. Like, ah, you're so angry. Obviously, we, we see this so often as many times when you yourself are guilty of sin, you can be more critical towards others in sin. It's not always the case, but this is so many times the case. That maybe it's like you are, you see the things in your life, they're hidden, they're secret, so you see someone in sin. Rather than having mercy on them, rather than having a spirit of gentleness on them, you, you almost project onto them, and it's like, how could they do this? And it almost like kind of reaches this weird self righteous thing in you where you have to now put someone else down. And, and this is what David's essentially feeling. He's saying, this man deserves to die. Now, here's my question like, why is obviously David on, on edge? Like, he hears a story, it's like four verses. And he's like, he's going to die. This guy needs to die. Stole a lamb, death. Okay, why is that? Obviously, I think there's been extreme guilt in David that's just been haunting him. Um, I, we've had it up here. I don't know if you turned there, but I, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are psalms that stem from this, from this moment in David's life. These psalms are birthed out of what David did with Bathsheba. They're penitential psalms. They're psalms where he's, he's repenting. He's going, God, have mercy on me. And I, I wanna, we're not going to get a chance to read the whole Psalms, but we will read pieces today. And I would just encourage you, if you find yourself in a season of just sin after sin, maybe no guilt, no conviction, turn to Psalm 32, turn to Psalm 51. But I want to read this. In Psalm 32, here's what David says. David says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old, through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer." I don't know if you've ever been in sin. I'm sure you have, right? Like all of us. I don't know if you've ever sinned. And if you haven't confessed right away or if you haven't tried to seek restoration, whatever that might be, it's crazy how awful you feel. It's crazy how like you feel like you're, you're just unsettled. My bones grew old. God's hand was heavy on me. David is feeling that. I think this is why David just reacts with so much anger because it's like the, the hand of the Lord is heavy on him. And again, there's something about that. It's weird how the enemy will take an emotion and God will take the same emotion and they have two different goals or two different desired outcomes. One is guilt and shame to push you away from God. Another is just conviction to bring you closer to God. And it's crazy that same emotion or feeling you get with unconfessed sin what it does. I was talking to my wife about the story uh, years ago. And I just remembered the story, so I'm going to call you up. Um, we were talking about the story. I'm like, man, isn't that crazy when you have unconfessed sin what it does to you? And I remember her telling me, like, yeah. In fourth grade, I remember we switched papers during a test. I had to grade another girl's paper. And, like, I didn't like the girl. So as I graded it, I changed her answers and made sure she failed. <laughs> Yeah, she was that. She was that girl. <laughs> just kidding. And I remember her like sharing that story, and I wrote it. That's written down. But she's like, and, and then I got home, and I just felt so bad. Mom, and like, is eating me up. I'm in my room. I'm crying. I felt terrible. And my mom comes, in, like, what is wrong? And she's like, cries. Her mom, like, I, I, I basically cheated. Or I ruined this girl's test, so she thought she failed. And she goes, to her mom, and her mom's like, you're gonna tell the teacher. You're gonna tell the girl. And so she has to do the whole thing For she tells the teacher what she did, and she tells the girl what she did. And then it's like, I'm so glad I feel so much better, right? It's like, I'm so, it's painful to do that in the process. Like, could you imagine how terrible? I'm kidding. We all have our sins. I had to think of her sin, not my sin. Um, (laughs) But you, you know what it's like to have that unconfessed thing and then finally to confess it. And so David is like, my bones ache. This hurts. This is painful. This is painful. God's hand is heavy on me. I think that's why we just see so much anger come out. Like, he deserves to die. But here's what I love. God just doesn't let us get away with it. Charles Spurgeon said famously, God does not permit his children to sin successfully. And that is so good. If you sin successfully for a long period of time, that should be concerning. There's something beautiful. Whom God loves, he chastises. Whom God loves, he chastens. He pursues. Hey, I love you. I don't want you to keep getting away with this. There's something beautiful about that. So God sends Nathan. I don't want you to get away with this. And all Nathan says, and this like so famous. He has this great story. And David's like, let's kill him. And then Nathan, so brilliant, he just goes, "You are the man." I, I want to talk about how Nathan does this because I think this is brilliant. Nathan didn't start with "You are the man," right? He ends with that. I think that's incredibly important. This is not the uh, introduction. This is the conclusion. I think that we have to see, it's not that, okay, sometimes it's, it's not that he's, like, afraid to confront David. It's not that he's weak. It's not that, like, he's like, oh, this is the king. I have to find, this is a way, to, I think, this is so beautiful when you see someone. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you up. I'm going to do it in a, in a different way. I'm gonna, I'm, I love you. I care for you. I have to, what is the goal? Is the goal to just say you're a filthy dirtbag sinner, or is the goal repentance? And I think that so often we can try to make people feel, like, very bad. We start off with it. Rather than, like, leading them to this own, like, this they, this is David's conclusion. This guy's a sinner. Yep, you're right. He is. Good job. Like, he led them to this. It's a very winsome way of going about it. I do believe Romans 2, 4 talks about how the goodness or the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. He goes, do you not know that? Do you not know the goodness of God leads us to repentance? You know, there obviously is a difference between someone, like, holding a sign on the street. Like, you're going to hell. Like, you're a sinner. Like, maybe you're right, but maybe you're incredibly wrong. Maybe the way in which we do it does matter. Maybe Jesus spoke in parables for a reason. Maybe the way Nathan approaches David, it's, it's for a unique reason. You know, I love how, what Tim Keller said about this. He says, it glorifies God for you to tell the truth about sin, but it glorifies God more if the person you're telling the truth to repents. It, it's great that you can maybe call it sin. It's awesome. But do, are you, like, are you doing about it in, like, a spirit-led, gentle Galatians 6 way? Where, like, I want, the goal here is not just to be a mirror and reveal your sin, as much as that is important. But the, the goal here is actually not a sword, as much as a scalpel. You know, I love the way the Bible actually describes how the, the Bible is like a sword. Because it is. It's so often like a sword. But also, in Ephesians 6 uses this term for sword. It's more like a, saw, a small sword that was used for, like, incisions. The idea is that the Bible can be like a sword, yes, but it can also be like a scalpel. Where God can like, I want, to, I want to kind of get in something close in your life. Like, I want to get in there. I want to do surgery on you. I'm not here to kill you. I'm here to do surgery on you. I'm here to, to not just call out sin, but to convert your heart. And this is something that's so beautiful. And God's like, again, I'm not just, I want you to know that I want you. I want you. David, I want your heart. I want genuine repentance. Listen, it's not repentance if you feel like you've been maybe called out for your sin, like if you're, if you're concerned about the consequence, it's not really repentance. If you're concerned just, oh no, this thing's gonna happen to me now, it's not really repentance. And we see this genuine thing that's about to happen with David. But I have to point this out because we all know John 3.16, but I love John 3.17. It says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The, what I love about John 3.17 is this idea that, hey, the world's already condemned. Jesus is not, Jesus is not coming to condemn the world. Why? Because we're already condemned. But he sent his son to redeem the world. That the world through him might be saved. There's a sense we're like, it's not so much about condemnation, we're already there. <laughs> he can't condemn us, we're already condemned. I, he sent him to redeem us, to save us. And there's this heart of God of like, it's not. I don't want to condemn you, I want to convert you. And I want you to see that your God is not a God who just is like, I'm looking to condemn you, but I'm looking to convert you to me, to bring you to me. We're told in Hebrews 3, verse 12, he says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily what is still called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Listen to that. The author of Hebrews says, you know what? We have this tendency to fall into this trap to be deceived by sin. Sin is decei- is deceitful. Sin makes you think this will be really good. You know you want this. You know this is something like you're craving. And when you give into it, man, it's deceiving. You feel that misery. You feel the misery kind of attachment, everything that comes with it. And he says, listen, we need people to exhort one another daily while it's still called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Like, we need people to say, I'm going to exhort you. I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to call you out. That's exactly what Nathan did. Again, we need Nathans today. We need, find a Nathan in your life. Hey, nothing's off limits speaking to me. Like, find some Nathans who can speak into you. Be a Nathan if you're in that place, you who are spiritual. But we need that. We need, we definitely, absolutely need this. And if you hear this, like, this speech that's given to David... And he says, you are the man. And you see God now speaking to him specifically. He's like, David, what are you doing? You've had everything. You've had the tribe of Israel and Judah. Everything's been under you. I love this phrase I have to point out in verse 8. In verse 8, God says, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. He I want you to see your God for a second in that way. God's like, why do you turn to this? And why do you think this will fulfill you? Don't you know, like, I want to bless you? Like, why do you think the world has something better to offer? Why do you think that it can fulfill you or satisfy you? I would have given you this and much more. It actually really reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke 12, and Luke 12, uh, 32. Jesus says, do not fear, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I just have to point this out because as God is calling out David, he's reminding David of his goodness. He's like, David, look at everything I've done for you. I would have done that and more. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We have to know that we, we serve a God who like, wants to give us those things that will actually benefit us. God might withhold things that we think are good because they're not good. But God, I actually do believe because like, I want to give you what you like. I, I want to bless you. I'm a father who wants to bless his children. Luke 12 is a, a chapter that's like dedicated to anxiety, saying, basically, be anxious for nothing. All things prayer. He's going into that, and then he's like, do not fear, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't you know you serve a God who has good intent for you? We serve a God and say, like, I have good intent for you, David. I would have added you that, that and much more. Like, I don't know if we always view God as—he has good intent for us. And it's as good—God is he's reminding David of his goodness as a way to bring him to repentance. So the first thing we essentially see here is calling out sin. This is a big part of that process. Listen, again, you will be called out. You need to be called out. If you're in a healthy church community, like you're actually like participating in it, um, hopefully as people get to know you and you get to know people, there's a mixture of this, but it's done well. It's done lovingly. It's done where it's prayed over, you who are spiritual. It's done without, you know, plucking that plank out of your own eye before somebody goes, to you. it's hopefully done well, but there has to be that, that element to some extent. Number two is this, uh, there is the confessing of your sin. So he's called out and he confesses. Well, actually just read the verse. It's pretty simple. It's just one verse. Uh, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I just want to stop there. Verse 13. He brings him this case. He calls out David and then David's like, I've sinned that's it. He doesn't fight. He doesn't say, no, no, you don't get it. You don't get it. The circumstances were different. He's not defending himself. He's not trying to explain himself. He just immediately confesses his sin. I've sinned against the Lord. This might seem simple to you, but it truly is profound. Like we want to fight it. I want to fight it. Someone's like, hey, that was kind of rude. I'm like, no, that wasn't really rude what I did. You don't get it. They deserve it. Like, I don't know, but we were really good at like trying to defend ourselves or our sin. David's called out and he just goes, I have sinned against the Lord. I cannot stress how important this is. Now, in that same idea, I want to kind of go to what David said about this. David writes in Psalm 32. Again, if you would, you can turn there. I want, to, I want you to see in Psalm 32, we'll read the verses, but I want you to see what David says. David writes in regards to this specific moment with Bathsheba, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. and my iniquity, I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He's like, I will confess, and you will forgive. Proverbs 20, 13, if you uh, cover your sin, you will not prosper. But if you confess and forsake your, your sin, you will have mercy. There's this idea of like, God's like, I'm just looking for it, confession. You know, we know if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is just God's like, yes. This is like just confess, own it. It is funny, like the hardest thing, again, going back to parent analogy, but like when you see your kid in that situation, you're like, just own it. Just own it, like, no, I will not. And you're like, I saw you do it, just say you did it. And it's so it's so weird. I know it's bad parenting probably. But I'm just like, you want to see that. You're like, just own it. There's something profound when they actually go, I actually, I did, I did, like, not like I did to get out of this, but like, I, I did. There, and this is like, oh, there's something about confession, as a, again, as a parent, you're like, this is beautiful. There's something about confession I think God's like, yes, you get it. It's not because you're concerned about the consequence of your sin, but because you know the relationship between me and you has been hurt. There's something about this, um, you think about this, I, I kind of get the question like, well, if I've already been forgiven my sins, why should I keep confessing my sins? If God's already forgiven me, why do I keep confessing? Um, Because in a healthy relationship, if you hurt someone, you confess your sin. If you want there to be harmony again, if you want there to be like deep intimacy again, it's not like, well, aren't I already already saved and going to heaven? Like, wrong question. The question is, how's the relationship between you and God? How has it been hurt? How has the unconfessed sin affected you? And that's the question we should be asking. That's why it's not so much that, okay, did God forgive me past, present, future? Absolutely. But again, if I've hurt my spouse or hurt someone I love and don't confess it, don't own it, don't talk about it, don't reconcile it, yes, there might be mutual love for each other, but there's still going to be a disconnect, a lack of harmony, a lack of peace in the home, whatever it might be. And David's like, okay, I'm going to confess it. And he's like, I'll confess, and God, you forgave. And then David in Psalm 51, I'll put the verse up here because, again, these psalms kind of go hand in hand, again, with the story of Bathsheba and David. This is what David says in Psalm 51, verse 1. God says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Do you guys remember that word we talked about, the said? That, I don't know, a couple weeks ago with uh, Mephibosheth. Uh, go back, whatever. But I love this. He, he's calling, th- this word steadfast love is just the covenant. He's calling on the covenant that God made with him. He's calling on this unbreakable covenant. God, because of your, your steadfast love, your has your this unbreakable covenant. I'm calling on that. Have mercy on me. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He says, I've done what is evil in your sight. What I see about this sometimes is um, when you're in sin, you, a lot of times we don't really know it. We don't really feel it. We'd be, we really do have to be careful with our emotions when it comes to sin. Sin does do something to like, it's, the Bible talks about how it basically, it's like a hot iron searing our conscience. Like, it's hard to navigate our emotions when we're in sin. The reason why I'm bringing this up is, because like, I, I acknowledge I have done with evil in your sight. We have to acknowledge there's something about us saying, I can't trust my emotions in this moment or in this season. It, my, my judgment is clouded. It's foggy. I'm going to have to go back to Scripture and say, God, what do you say about this? Okay, this is my guiding path now in this. It's I've noticed that there are people who have— um, have, like, false guilt, and there are people who lack true guilt. I mean, I don't know if you've ever met someone who, uh, they do something small, and it just haunts them, and not even small, like, not even it's like, oh, I should have said hi to them, I don't know, and like, they eat, it eats them alive, you're like, hey, what is that? You know, like, they constantly feel this guilt and shame, you're like, I don't know why you live in that, and then there's others who, like, do something like, that was terrible, and you're like, yeah, I feel nothing, you're like, oh, there, there's, there's some of these extremes that can happen and our emotions we really can't trust. And we have to go, okay, God, but what do you say? Like, how, how do I respond when I'm in sin, when I'm in the moment? And David's like, I've done what is evil in your sight against you and you only have I sinned, which I want to come back to that because that is a really preposterous thing to say, it feels like, at least to us. But here's the idea. And I love what Keller says about this. He says, repentance is killing. Listen, repentance is killing the habits of your heart that are killing you. Repentance is making careful distinctions with your mind it's taking radical responsibility with your will, and it's achieving emotional distaste against your sin with the heart. It's weird how repentance, it does involve my mind, my will, my heart. God, this thoughts that are in my mind, I want, to rep- I want to confess that, repent that over to you. The will, I want to actually do these things. I want to repent and say, God, not my will, but your will. My heart, which is deceitfully wicked, I don't want to trust, and I want to say, give me a new heart. And repent is saying, God, I, I want a whole person to repent. I want to kill the thing that's actually killing me. Sin is killing me. Remember we, John Owen's quote last week? Be killing sin or sin be killing you. It's either you're killing it or it's killing you. I want to be killing it or it's going to be doing something to me. And David says this thing that is, I think, hard for us, where he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Because we read that and go, David, I mean, come on, man. You sinned against, like, everyone. You sinned against Bathsheba you sinned against Uriah, you sinned against Joab, who asked, you asked to do the dirty work, you sinned against your kingdom, you're the king. Like, what are you talking about, David? On one sense, David sinned against everyone. On another very real sense, this is not some theological essay he's writing as much as he's saying, I've acknowledged that all this stems from my heart being at odds with you, God. Because I sinned against you, I've now sinned against everyone. In reality, when your heart is not at peace with God and it's at odds with God, you really sinned against Him and Him only. But as you sin against Him and Him only, and you cut off that relationship, now you're cutting off all the relationships that God designed. And He's like, God against you and you only have I sinned. one what is evil in your sight. However, this is what David writes in Psalm 51. We'll keep going. Psalm 51, verse 10. David does what we all need to do, which is confess, repent. He says, Create in me, listen, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from Your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. Then, listen, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. In some ways, I'm like, how can you say this, David? Like, you just committed murder, you, like you covered it up, you did some terrible, terrible things. And he, I love his prayer. Created me a clean heart, O God, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Like this is the prayer to pray after your sin, by the way. This is a beautiful prayer. Like, yes, Lord, do this. Then I will teach sinners your way. Like, how does he get the audacity to do to say that? You know what I love about this? Um, many times you can hate the sin so much you begin to like hate yourself. And there's something that David's doing, which is like, I'm hating this sin, but I'm not going like, to act like God can't use me anymore. I'm going to hate this sin a lot. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways. Sometimes I think we can go to this extreme where it's like, God can never use me. God can never do anything with me. I should know better. David should know better. David's the guy who says, I delight to do your will, O God. David, you should know better if anyone. In reality though, he goes, But Lord who created me a clean heart which sorted me the joy of my salvation. Do this, God. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Then I'll teach sinners your ways, then I can tell them, Lord. It's Paul who just persecuted and killed Christians and goes, I am the chiefest of sinners. And God has saved me so I can be an example of all of those who one day will believe. Paul points out to the future of like God's showing He's saving me as a model. If he can save me, he can save you. David's like, if God can forgive me of what I've done, God, you can forgive anyone of what they've done. He's like, then I'll teach transgressors your ways. It's not like he's just sidelined. Now, it's believed that there was like a year, by the way, between this. Maybe Obviously, the baby being born It's a long time of unconfessed sin, and I'm sure that's why he felt the weight of it. But he's like, Lord, just restore what we had. Restore what we had. Again, a beautiful prayer. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Then I'll teach your sinners your ways. God, I know you're not done with me yet. God, I know you're still working in me. This is absolutely beautiful. One author says repentance begins where blame-shifting bargaining, and rationalizing end. This is where repentance begins. I'm not going to blame shift. I'm not going to rationalize. I'm not going to bargain. How do you know it's genuine repentance? Your mind, your will, your heart, you're not bargaining. You're not blaming. You're just like, yes, Lord, I have sinned. That's what David said. That's all he says, you guys. I have sinned against the Lord. And here's what Nathan said to him. Verse 13, same verse. Nathan said to David, the Lord also put away your sin, you shall not die. Isn't that insane? He just gave him some of the heaviest words. David, here's some consequences gonna happen to you and your family, to your wives, to your family. God's not gonna do it in secret like you did, it's gonna be open. David's like, I've sinned. You're not gonna die. So quick. How quick is that? Nathan just spoke on behalf of God, he's still speaking on behalf of God. You're not gonna die. You're forgiven. There's still gonna be consequences, we're gonna see in just a second. But you're forgiven. This is unbelievable to me. I like have to focus on this. I love what Charles Spurgeon said in a similar manner. He said, listen to this, slow are the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. God can run where we scarcely limp, and if we are limping towards him, he will run towards us. Slow are the steps of repentance. My, my feet are pretty slow, and it's like, oh, I don't know if I want to own that, but quick are the feet of forgiveness. I've sinned. You're forgiven. Huh? How? How is this possible? This bugs a lot of people about Christianity. I don't get it. So you just say, God forgive me and God forgives you? Yeah. I don't like that. I know. <laughs> it goes against our works-based mentality. It goes against so much. It's just saying, by grace, you've been saved through faith, not of works that's anyone should boast. I know. It goes against this American meritocracy. Like, we want to work for it. We want to feel it. Deserve it. You don't, you don't deserve it. You don't. It goes against a lot of, like, how we're wired. So God just can forgive? Yeah. Why? Because God paid a huge price it wasn't free, but it, was, it is free. It's free, but it's, it costs. It's so interesting how this works. Eugene Peterson points this out about this story, and I think it's fast, and I want to share it with you. Here's what Eugene Peterson said. He says, listen, there's a remarkable verbal resonance of the story of David standing before Nathan, and listen, and that of Jesus standing before Pilate. Nathan says of David, you are the man. Pilate says of Jesus in John 19, behold the man. Stay with me. Here's the idea." you have with Jesus and Pilate, you have the one who's on the judgment seat, Pilate, who should be on the dock. Jesus is being judged, but he should be on the judgment seat. With Nathan, you have him on the judgment seat, but he should be the one on the dock. He shouldn't be on the judgment seat. It has like this, this little similarity where he's like, behold, the, you are the man, David. Like David, you're the man. You're the sinner. And Pilate sees Jesus, and this is the first words of his mouth. He actually says, behold the man. There's the guy that everyone's talking about, but just behold the man. I do find this just fascinating. It's you and I, what should be said of us, you are the man. You're the guilty one. You're the sinner. I'm the sin. You are. We are. But because Jesus is the behold the man, we are no longer you are the man. We are now in Christ, and we boast and behold the man. That's why we're innocent. That's why we're forgiven, because there was a price that's been paid. So it's no longer you are the man. It's behold the man. So there was this you are the man. You're the guilty one. Yes, I am. But, but, can I show you something? Behold the man. And these phrases are so unbelievable. He's pointing out this this similarity, Eugene Peterson is saying, look, they're saying you're the man to David. But because Jesus being behold the man, we, we are no longer are you are the man. We are just saying, Ha, ah, yeah, you're right, I'm guilty. But behold the man. Behold the man, I'm no longer on the do- I'm no longer standing before the judge. Behold the man. So beautiful. How can he say, You're forgiven? Behold the man. That's how. That's what the story points. It just has this crossover, like, guilty, standing before innocent. Innocent, standing before guilty. Behold the man. Behold the lamb who is slain before the foundations of the world. Because of that, that's how he can say you're forgiven. doesn't make sense to me either. Only because of behold the man it does. Only because of what Jesus did it makes sense. Behold the man who takes away the sins of the world. That, that's why it, only a little bit can it make sense. Again, this phrase, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. A few things, I'll make it really quick, truly. A few things about forgiveness. I'll put up here, four things. Uh, God's forgiveness is full. God's forgiveness is full. You're not forgiven one-half, three-fourths, 99%. That 1% God's going to get you. God's, God's forgiveness is full. You need to know that. God's forgiveness covers all. It's full. But it's also, God's forgiveness is sure. It's not like, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll forgive you. If you, it's, it's sure. You're forgiven. God's forgiveness is immediate. It's not like, all right, David, now go to purgatory for like five years. It's not, just not like, go do this thing. Do these great things. It's, he's put away your sins. It's immediate. God's forgiveness is free. David did nothing to deserve it. But I want to say sort of. God's forgiveness is free, sort of. There was a cost, but someone else paid for it. And this is what I love about just the story. It's like, it's so quick. You're forgiven. God, put away your sin. I think that's why David could write later, oh, how happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. Wow, Lord, that you would save someone like me, a lying, adultering, murdering person. Yeah. If I can save you, I can save anyone. There's still, in this reality, there's still consequences of sin. And this is where we live in this weird tension of, are you forgiven? Absolutely. Do we still reap what we sow? Absolutely. But there's a little conclusion point I want to get to in a second. So here's the third point. Um, the consequences of sin. Nathan's like, David, your son's going to die. The, the one that Bathsheba gave birth to, he's, he's going to die. Here's what James 1 says. James 1 says, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Is that not David? What happened? Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. That happened. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. We talked about this last week, but sin, sin always brings death. We just, there's no, there's nothing way, there's no way around it. Sin always brings death. Like who's death? We saw Uriah's death. We see the baby's death. For us, sin brings death. Absolutely. But if you're in Christ, it's his death. But sin, regardless, will always bring death. Galatians 6 says, do not be deceived. We know this. up here. For the one who uh, sows to the flesh, will the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, will the Spirit reap eternal life. Here's the idea. We're seeing, um, David, you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption now. David, like, you're forgiven. God's put the sin away from you, but there's still consequences. You know, we see this play out so often in people's lives where it's like, doesn't God forgive me? Yes. Why am I going through this? Is it as much as he's punishing you, or this is just what you have sown, and now so this is what you are reaping? it's probably more that. It's more, okay, you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. But if you sow to the spirit, you're going to reap life. And we kind of can't hide away from that. Because we're like, I don't get why I'm still going through this. It's like, well, that's what happens when you do this sin. You go to jail. Like, there's still going to be consequences for certain things. Is there forgiveness? Yes. Is there consequences? Yes. But I want to read the story because I think there's also, a, there's like this surprise ending to me that I find absolutely beautiful. So I want to keep reading actually the story. Um, so this is what happened to David, right? He, what do he say? Do you guys remember what he said to Nathan? He goes, God, you know, do to him fourfold what he did. He's like, this man deserves fourfold of a crime. Here's what happened. David loses four sons. What Dave, David's judgment is what's given to him. David's baby dies. Absalom killed Amnon, one of his sons. Joab killed Absalom, another son. Benaiah killed Adonijah, another son. David's like, this guy took away the land, restored him fourfold. fourfold. And I was like, what judgment you've shown is now going to be given to you. Fourfold for your sons die. James puts it this way: James two thirteen. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown nurse, mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He's like, you're going to judge without mercy. The same judgment. And this is something Jesus says. The same judgment you use we use towards you. There's something about this. Like, David, you had an opportunity to be merciful to this guy. You weren't this theoretical guy. What you pronounced was now going to be pronounced on you. But I want to keep going with this story because there's something again profound. Therefore, verse 16, put the verse up here. David, therefore, sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Listen, there's something about this because we do so often see God pursue, like we see this with Hezekiah. We see this with, we see God's like, I'm going to pour out judgment. And we see men going, God, please don't pour out judgment. And God does relent if he so wills if he so wills. And David's like, may I know God's character. I'm just going to, yes, God said my son's going to die, but I'm going to pray and I'm going to worship. And I'm going to fast. And I'm not going to eat. I'm going to say, God, please deliver my son. His son still dies. We'll read verse 19, pick it up there. David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He worshiped after his son died. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then a servant said to him, what is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live, but now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. There are some things kind of in this that we're worth just spending time on or thinking on and, and um, if you've experienced a tragic thing like David, by the way, I would just say his response of worship, I know it's not an easy response right away. I know that that's probably not our default mode, but I do think this is where and why healing began is like, I'm going to worship. He, he finds out terrible news and he just worships. He worships. I'm not saying that this is easy. I'm not saying, so you better do this when you, when you suffer. I'm not saying that this is like, this is a hard, difficult thing. But I think this is why David gets like a revelation from God where he says something in the worship. He goes, I can't go to him, but he can come to me. Or he can't come to me, but I can go to him. I think David gets this profound thing. I I want you to understand something. It was not really known what happens when you die. Like according to Jewish people this time period, there's not a lot. David wrote Psalm 16. That's actually a great insight into what happens after death. There's really not a lot known up until this point. Like what happens when you die? David gets this revelation and goes, you know what? He's not going to come back to me, but I'm going to go to him. Basically, I will see him again. Now, I know there's some debate around this or thoughts around this, but I do, I do find this passage incredibly hopeful. If you've lost a child, this idea of, I will see him again. What happens to a baby if they die and they didn't know Jesus? I cling to this idea of what David said. They're not going to come back to me, but I'm going to go to them. This idea that this child is in, in heaven. This child is with God. This child's in God's presence where there's fullness of joy. And you know what? I'm going to go see him. And David had this unique hope. And I listen, my point of bringing that up is saying, I don't think he would have had that without it said, and David worshiped. But David worships and he has this unique vision of like, I'm gonna see him again. And I'm gonna be with him again. And there's something I think that this, this is a passage that has brought a lot of people throughout time, a lot of comfort for those who've lost children or walked through that process or a miscarriage of some sort. There's, there's all these questions around that. And I would just, I would say, I cling to this revelation that David got. That they might not come back to me, but I'm gonna go to them. I'll see them. And there's something so beautiful, I think, that's revealed in worship, but uh, I love what Vance Havner says. He says, when you know where something is, you haven't lost it. (laughs) He's like, I haven't, I'm going to go to him. I haven't lost it. something really sweet about this. Now, I want to say this. This is a hard, this is still not an easy passage to swallow. This baby dies because of David's sin. What? What is going on? There's something in scriptures where I really do think that um, God obviously understands our suffering way more than we give him credit for. God knows what it's like to suffer, and I don't know if we always believe that, because God's in heaven, right? God's like, I, I, I know. I know what it's like to lose a son to death. That is something that is something, you know, before the foundations of the world, Jesus was slain, the scriptures say, before even this. God's like, yeah. God, here's what's weird. This story, there are a lot of times in scriptures, we will see two different unique people or two different things, but it's one story, one message. One son dies, but another son lives. One son dies, but they give birth to Solomon, who will be the next king, who will also be the great, 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 great grandparent of Jesus. One son death, another son life, and these two individual stories are really telling us one story. My son will die, but my son will be bring the kingdom forever. And it kind of here's the idea. David had a lot of wives, right? We can't like, ignore that. David had a lot of wives. It's not okay. It's not. The Bible calls it out. But this is what's interesting. He had a lot of wives. Bathsheba's the one to bring forth the Messiah. The Messiah will come from Bathsheba. She'll give birth to Solomon. He'll give birth to his son, uh, Rehoboam. And it keeps going and going and going and going. And then comes Jesus. God's like, you can screw This is the idea. You can screw up royally and ruin plan A for your life. But I'm a God of also plan B. And like, it doesn't matter how much you mess up. Isn't it so cool the Messiah Messiah is still going to come through David and through Bathsheba? Like, you can mess up royally, David. And there's consequences for that, but it's almost like God can't help himself be gracious. (laughs) But you're still going to have through Bathsheba, the son Solomon, who's going to bring forth the Messiah in the kingdom forever. And I just see that there's a God who's like, you might mess up your life royally and epically, but I still bring Jedediahs. I love you. I love because of the Lord's love is the idea. She gives birth to Solomon. Solomon means peace, but they changed the name to Jedidiah. And God actually tells him to name him both names, 1 Chronicles. He's supposed to be getting both names, which he is. But the idea of he is peace, and it's because of the Lord's love. Because the Lord loves, David, still, your kingdom will still remain forever. Because of your, my love for you, Jesus is called the son of David. Like, I, I, I find that fast. David, the one who did this, Jesus now carries the identity or title son of David? Yeah. God's like, because I made an unbreakable covenant with you, through your kingdom, through your king, sh- or through your kingdom, it shall reign forever. There's just this idea of like, yeah, David, you can screw up royally and epically, but I'm just a God who brings Jedidiah's <laughs> God who brings love for no reason. And this story to me is painful, it's tragic, you read it, it's like, oh, David, what are you doing? You And listen, we're going to read more, There's gonna be, it's going to be crazy and chaos, the sons that died, we're going to read about that soon, the three other sons. We're going to read what happens with David's family. Because of David's sin, it's it's awful, it's terrible, it ruins his family, but God is still like, but my promise to you is still faithful and sure, and it's not based off what you do in your performance, but it's based off the promise I made to you, and the promise I made to you is your kingdom shall remain forever, and I'm faithful to my word, and that is going to happen through your son, Solomon, because he will have give birth to the next one, the next son, the next one, and then will come Jesus, the Messiah of the world. So yes, you blew it epically. Yes, there'll be pain. Yes, there'll be chaos, but my kingdom shall remain forever through your son. I'm still faithful to the promise I gave you. And he was promised as faithful, as faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus. And that's just the God we serve. And as painful as this is, and as tricky as this passage is, we say, but God's like, I can't help but be faithful to who I am. This is who he is. And we say, God, thank you that you're good enough to call up my sin. You're good enough to forgive me my sin when I confess it. And yes, there's still consequences to my sin. But even in the midst of my consequences, even in the midst of the terrible things I do, God, we know that I can be with you. I can have your love because of what you've done for me. Because you stood in my place. Because you are that innocent party to stand before Pilate and behold the man. Behold the man who took all my sin, all the wrath I deserve. He took it all so I can now be that freed, forgiven man. Thank you, Jesus. And this is what we have in Christ. As painful and as confusing as it is, we have something so beautiful in Jesus. And I just want to respond and worship. I just want to, can you just bow your head, close your eyes? I just want to say thank you, Jesus. Because calling out my sin is one of the most loving things you can do. Not letting me get away with it is because you love me. Sending people into my life that say the hard thing, it's not because you don't like me, it's because you love me. And Lord, thank you that if I confess, you're faithful to forgive. Thank you that if I confess, you say, yes, you're forgiven. I don't hold against you. I just want you to know, listen, if you've not experienced Jesus in this way, if you've not made Jesus the Lord of your life, if you've not yet received the fact that because of his stripes you are healed and his blood cleanses us from all sin, do so today. Believe on Jesus. All those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is it really that easy? Yes. Why? Because behold the man. Behold the man. Look at this guy who took our place. It doesn't make sense to me. God can be like, yep, your sins are forgiven. How? How that fast? Because of Jesus. So we just want to invite you into a relationship with Jesus, to know this Jesus, to walk with Jesus. If you've been a Christian for 20, 30 years. Confess your sins still. Why? For harmony, for peace, for that ongoing relationship. We just want to worship Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that we can come and celebrate and say, behold the man and behold the lamb who was slain god worthy is the lamb we look to you now and just say thank you there is no one like you god that despite our sin you still love us that god in spite of that you still pursue us and we just say thank you jesus thank you that you not send an enemy of war but you send a friend thank you god we look to you we need you we confess we say god we are unworthy we are nothing without you but we thank you that in christ we are a new creation and we just praise you and say thank you Jesus thank you, Jesus. For anyone here is unsure. For anyone here whose life is still a question mark, God, I pray that it would become an exclamation point a period. that they would know that they are in Christ, that they would receive the free gift of salvation found in you, Jesus, because you were the innocent one who died for the guilty. You are the son who died. You are the son who brings life. It's you. We just thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Why not we stand in worship?